When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. Today, we're thinking big about how to stop Trump. We'll speak with Zach Exley about how big organizing can change everything. He was one of the key people organizing the grassroots part of the Bernie campaign. Also thinking big about how to stop Trump, Rebecca Solnit, author of Hope in the Dark, something we need a lot of right now. And we're still thinking about the big victory at Standing Rock, where the Dakota Access Pipeline has been stopped, at least for a while, by an amazing movement. For that, we turn to Naomi Klein. Of course, she's an award-winning journalist and author of the international bestsellers, This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate, The Shock Doctrine, and her unforgettable book, No Logo, back in 2000. Each of her books has been translated into more than 25 languages. She's a contributing editor for Harper's, a reporter for Rolling Stone, and she writes a regular column for The Nation, where she just published a report from Standing Rock, along with a video that's been seen by more than a million and a half people. Today, we reached her uh, near the Standing Rock camp in North Dakota. Hi, Naomi. Hi, John. Exactly where are you, and what's it like there right now? I am in a pickup truck with Eric Freycloud who is a, a member of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, has been working on economic development here. And we're pulling up to the uh, Prairie Night Casino, which is, I guess, like certainly the biggest business here. And uh, it is just jam-packed with vets, with, with people from the camp um, who have come to, come to take shelter here because it's been an absolute blizzard for the past two days cold, but, but really driving sideways winds, lots of real whiteout conditions. So a lot of people um, weren't prepared for that type of weather. And God, I don't know how you can be prepared for that type of weather, but, and slept here. So we uh, just came, we, we've been staying with the Two Bears family who took us in, <laughs> in the blizzard. Um, and now uh, are, are heading to the casino where we heard it's, um, we, we heard uh, that I'm not sure. I think that there might not, that food's run out and uh, uh, probably there's reinforcements now because we just saw that the roads are clearing. So uh, it's just been incredible, honestly, the hospitality of the community here in, in Cannonball, just opening up homes. You know, people have like, you know, 20, 30 uh, strangers sleeping on their, uh, you know, living room floors and in their, in their bedrooms and giving up their beds. Uh, which is what happened to me last night. So it's just like extraordinary generosity. Um, there has been amazing generosity up till now, but this, you know, in the middle of a blizzard, you, you know, you really see it. Um, and you also see the amazing, you know, self-sufficiency also, uh, just dealing with this kind of extreme weather of people here. So, yeah, 
<laughs> so how did it happen that a small group of people in an isolated remote place in the middle of a blizzard got the United States Army Corps of Engineers to change its mind? Well, the blizzard held off kindly enough until right after the victory came. <laughs> um, so the day the victory came uh, down, uh, it was, you know, clear skies and, and, and not too cold. And it was, uh, you know, it, it, it's been an amazing, it's been an amazing movement here that started with uh, young people uh, on the reservation. The Standing Rock Sioux youth came together um, and, uh, and started spreading the message that their water was under threat and their future was under threat. And, you know, these small videos went viral talking about the threat that the Dakota Access Pipeline posed to their water source. So a big part of the reason why this has been become such a symbol is that this pipeline, uh, which obviously is connected to increased emissions, um, was originally supposed to be built uh, right near the city of Bismarck, a predominantly white city, um, and it was deemed to be too great a risk to Bismarck's water. Um, so they moved, they rerouted the pipeline so that it was very, very close to the reservation um, and a threat to the water supply. So it was just, you know, kind of as clear cut a case of environmental racism, uh, kind of the hierarchy of life that is built into so much of our, our social and economic system that made the no, you know, loud and clear. And this place became a beacon for people in the United States, in Canada, around the world. By the time I got here, there were an estimated 14,000 people in all the various camps that had come uh, to stand in solidarity and in support of uh, the Standing Rock Sioux. Another thing that made, has made this movement really, um, I think, different than some of the other kind of iconic environmental struggles is that though um, you know, pretty much every, every fight you can point to really is led by the people who are most affected, the people who are going to deal with these projects in their backyard. It's going to impact their water, their air, their health. Often you don't hear the, the, the most impacted voices amplified. And I think one of the really beautiful parts of this movement is the way in which independent media has worked with uh, the tribe, um, has worked with the uh, Indigenous Environmental Network, including many, many indigenous media makers to amplify those voices. And we are at this kind of tipping point moment with, you know, live streaming um, and viral video where that's been able to happen. And for a long time, the major media outlets didn't even show up. Um, it really took the vets before the networks sh uh, showed up. Yeah. You talked to a 13-year-old girl at the camp, taped a, a little interview with her about how this started. Uh, we want to listen to that, but first, set, set the scene. We were all at the camp, and somebody had the idea to kind of show how many people were there uh, by making a sort of human chain around the camp. So we were in the middle of doing that, and there's some drones flying overhead taking pictures of uh, these thousands of people holding hands uh, around the camp. And, and while we were in the line, sudden, suddenly, like, there was a buzz, and we started to hear this rumor that the, that the, that the a permit for the easement had been denied by the Army Corps of Engineers. And people slowly started making their way to the, the sacred fire, the sort of the central fire in the camp, 
um, that's become a gathering place. It's where information is shared. By the time we got there, uh, the chairman uh, of the Standing Rock Sioux, uh, Dave Archibald, was there, um, and he was starting to address the crowd, telling them that he had personally received the call. And there was just, you know, uh, cheers going up and, and, and just, you know, incredible jubilation. And I happened to be standing with a young woman named Takata Iron Eyes, who is one of the Standing Rock kids who originally again, made this kind of viral, lovely video where they talked about their water um, and what it meant to them spiritually um, and, uh, and existentially. And this video kind of went wild. And she, she was only 12 when she, when she participated in the making of that video. But a lot of people here credit her and her friends with really starting this movement. So I happened to be with Takata um, when the news came and, and got to get her immediate response. And that video has now been seen by well over a million and a half people. So let's listen now. Naomi Klein speaking with 13-year-old Tokata Iron Eyes. Can you tell me your name and who you are? Uh, my name is Tokata Iron Eyes. I'm 13 years old and I'm from the Standing Rock Reservation. And um, you helped start this movement, didn't you? Tell me about that. Um, this entire movement was um, brought up by the youth. And... Um, it just started so small and then this entire camp was built and it was just very powerful to see everybody coming together and living together and praying together and having ceremonies together and it was just so powerful and what just happened and now the easement for dapple was denied <laughs> when like just now <laughs> And how do you feel about that as a 13-year-old who just launched a campaign with your friends and your family? I feel like I got my future back. You got your future back, honey? <laughs> oh, my God. That's really what's at stake here, the future for these, for these kids and here, here in Standing Rock. But I mean, the truth is that when we take on the fossil fuel industry, we're fighting for the future of all of our kids, for any kind of safe future. Uh, we cannot stay on this trajectory. And one of the things that's been most exciting for me uh, in meeting the leadership here at Standing Rock, this uh, next generation of leaders uh, who are on tribal council and uh, people like Takata's father, Chase Iron Eyes, who ran for Congress. Um, this election cycle didn't win, but I certainly, I think we're going to keep hearing from him. You know, are, are talking about, and then somebody else who I've um, made several videos with, uh, whose house I crashed at last night, Cody Tuberis, who's a council member. A lot of people have been talking about, yes, it's, it's one thing to fight fossil fuels, but we have to build the alternatives now. We have to show that it's possible to build a justice-based uh, post-carbon economy. Um, and there's a lot of hope and excitement here that the interest in Standing Rock and the kind of symbol it's become could be leveraged to, uh, to turn that into a reality. And that's been a really exciting prospect. We have to show that it's possible. Naomi Klein, read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Naomi. Thanks, John. Great talking with you.
When big dangers arise, you have to think big. And for that, we turn to Rebecca Solnit. She's a writer, historian, and activist. She's written 18 books about popular power, uprisings, art, environment, place, pleasure, and politics. Her newest book is Nonstop Metropolis, a New York City atlas. She's also the author of Men Explain Things to Me, the definitive work on mansplaining. She writes for The Guardian. She's a contributing editor to Harper's. And she wrote recently for The Nation about the election just before it happened. Last time we spoke with her here, we talked about the new edition of one of my favorites of her books, Hope in the Dark, Untold History's Wild Possibilities. Hope, of course, is something we really need right now. We reached her today in San Francisco. Hi, Rebecca. Good morning, John. Wonderful to be talking with you again. And what a week. Oh, boy. Well, many people who voted against Trump are now saying, let's give him a chance. We all know campaigning is different from governing. Maybe he won't be so bad. We should wait and see what he actually does as president before we get outraged. Uh, What do you think about giving Trump a chance and waiting and seeing? I think that's sort of like waiting to see if the elephant running at you is still running at you now that it's 10 feet away. Trump is not turning into some kind of reasonable rule of law, respect the Constitution kind of guy. He's going after everything we hold dear, every democratic value, a lot of human rights, and uh, appointing the worst possible people and the most unqualified people, and monetizing the presidency in obscene and possibly illegal ways so far. So like, Nothing about that makes me want to wait and see. So let's talk about uh, hope about the people who persevere despite the official experts who tell them they will lose. One of the best examples is last weekend's victory at Standing Rock. Let's talk about that for a minute and what it can show us uh, for the struggle ahead. Yeah, that was just the most beautiful, amazing sort of exciting thing in recent memory. I I had a real feeling that the more than 2,000 veterans who went to Standing Rock were really going to make a difference. We don't know exactly why the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers decided to pull the permit. I tend to think that the veterans either impressed the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which is after all part of the Army, but we don't know for sure. But we do know that passionate commitment, dedication, solidarity, this most extraordinary gathering of the tribes in history, pretty much. You know, and people's dedication when it didn't look possible to stop the pipeline, when it didn't seem like they were going to accomplish things, when odds seemed against them, that's what did it. I've really been moved to see, you know, this week that's the anniversary, the beginning of the Montgomery bus boycott and really the beginning of the civil rights movement as we know it, to to see people who do what they believe in, even when it seems like a long shot or almost impossible or extremely unlikely. And sometimes we win. But I also think it's really important when you look at Standing Rock to not just look at the immediate thing, which is that they've pulled back the permit and, you know, which may eventually go forward, but only after this thing that almost certainly disrupts the schedule and their profitability of building the pipeline. But there's all these other things that happen with an action like this. And so much of my hope is about indirect effects. And this has really, 
you know, this is really rewriting the history of North America, uh, which is a history of abuse, disenfranchisement, uh, dispossession, and genocide against Native Americans. And it feels like if there's anything that feels like a great turning point, it's this moment where a lot of non-Native people came to stand with Native people, where the issues got articulated beautifully, where a lot of Native people, including some of my personal friends, have really been lifted up and inspired and given hope and joy that they didn't have before. I talked to a guy when I visited Standing Rock briefly in September who said, I wake up happy every day. You know, and it has possibly created new leaders and visionaries and and movements that we don't yet recognize. And it's also shown us that we can win, and sometimes we can win against tremendous odds. I think whatever happens with the transfer of power, we're heading into a very ugly time. And we're going to need to be as brave, as resolute, as committed as the people at Standing Rock. We're calling this a victory. Exactly what kind of victory is it? You know, I think a lot of people on the left are afraid that victories are when we go home and they're afraid to call things victories in case we all feel happy and confident and relaxed. But a lot of the brilliant people at Standing Rock, like Dallas Goldtooth, who's been there most of the time, you know, giving us these great reports as part of the Indigenous Environmental Network, we're just so ecstatic and really celebrating. And I think a lot of us see victories not as the finish line, but as a milestone. And this is a very real victory because the pipeline frenzy has been about the fact that the Dakota Access Pipeline builders have a deadline, and that's January 1st. They have all these contracts to ship oil at 2014 prices before the bottom fell out of the petroleum market. If they don't finish the pipeline by January 1st, you know, those contracts expire and the profitability of the pipeline really collapses. So just delaying the building of the pipeline makes it so much less valuable. And this is, you know, it's just like seeing the way Trump is challenging the election recount. When you see that your enemies are frightened and furious, you get the sense that you're probably doing something that matters. And it's certainly the case here. So, you know, it really is disrupting, you know, the success of the pipeline in meaningful ways that may cause investors to back out. It may make investors more leery to um, support future pipelines that face similar challenges. It may give notice that Native American rights are not so easy to trample on as they have been historically, that a lot of us want to stand with those people, and that the sort of intertribal solidarity means that you can't target a small group in a remote place and think that they're powerless and invisible and you can do whatever the hell you want, which clearly the state of North Dakota has assumed. So I think that there's a lot of things there that are a victory, not a victory to quit and relax, but a victory to feel like what we do matters and let's keep doing it. Let's keep doing it. And of course, that means let's stop Trump, something you've been working pretty hard on lately. What's the next step in how to stop Trump? The Electoral College is meeting on December 19th. And there's a bunch of ways to challenge the the transition of power to Trump. And it really breaks down into two things. Was this a legitimate election? A lot of people say there's evidence that the results are not accurate and trustworthy, that it may have been hacked, rigged 
otherwise distorted. The recount that the Green Party has called has been a tremendous contribution. We don't know what the results will be. I just interviewed Jill Stein, and she's got a kind of we'll see when we get there attitude. But, you know, there's calls for an audit. There's calls for a recount in Florida. And so challenging the election results, did Donald Trump actually win the Electoral College is one thing. The other thing, which is also being done by elected officials in Washington and many others, is challenging the candidate. Is Donald Trump qualified to be president? Should he, you know, should the transfer of power be prevented because he is accepting emoluments that are banned in the Constitution and other illegal things. Should we start preparing impeachment proceedings? So both of those things give us some real possibility. And, of course, it's a long shot And in this conversation about long shots to actually stop Trump. But the process of challenging the legitimacy of the election and the legitimacy of the candidate really is about weakening his grasp his pop, you know, his legitimacy and strengthening civil society to be ready to stand up. Something I feel very strongly is we're going to face, if this transfer of power goes through, enormous challenges to our First Amendment rights, our civil liberties, and um, we need to enter this period as strong and confident and powerful as possible. We need to occupy the space that belongs to us and our rights as fully as possible, rather than kind of shrinking and uh, limiting ourselves out of fear uh, before they do it to us. So that's part of what this project to stop Trump I'm doing with Taj, the great organizer, Taj James with the Center for Movement-Based Strategies is about, is strengthening civil society and delegitimizing Trump. Well, you're in San Francisco. We record this in Los Angeles. And here in California, especially in California, you know, we are not alone. Uh, Trump got 32 percent of the popular vote in California. Of course, he didn't get close to a majority nationwide either. But here in California, the state legislature elected a supermajority of Democrats who resolved on their first day meeting Monday of this week to use state resources to fight Trump initiatives, especially around deporting undocumented immigrants. The first day of the new legislative session, our lawmakers announced bills that would provide attorneys to undocumented immigrants facing deportation hearings. That is, attorneys paid for by the state. Uh, another bill requires that all uh, governmental agencies refuse to assist in any proposed registry of Muslim immigrants. And another one uh, pro provides money to train public defenders about how to represent undocumented immigrants. So we are not alone. Well, we're more, you know, we're about 12 or is it 12 or 14 percent of the nation? Yeah, and there are times where I don't even know what it means to be an American, and it's such a big empire, and there's so many parts of it I don't know. But I'm absolutely confident I'm a Californian, and yeah. times like this, I'm proud of it. One of the ways that California helped get us through the Bush era is by functioning as a semi-autonomous and very powerful nation, making its own policy on climate, uh, defending human rights, really diverging strongly. And that's happening again as we prepare to separate ourselves from the net, you know, what may be happening at the federal level. And it's, it's a great moment for California. I heard Janet Napolitano on the radio yesterday talking as the head of the UC system about how UC will not cooperate in turning over students who are undocumented. 
And I loved hearing her clarity and defiance and hearing how what she understands as the former head of Homeland Security gives her strength and clarity in the process of refusing to cooperate. And that defiance, again, sends us into, you know, this potential Trump era as strong as possible, you know, against him and weakening him before he starts. And I think that's fantastic. And of course, there's also the sanctuary movement, very, a, a very, very powerful in its meaning and very potentially powerful in its effect. And this isn't just a few uh, left-wing churches. This is the uh, chiefs of uh, police of all the big cities in California. It's every county in California, uh, every city in California. It's the state legislature itself. California is officially a sanctuary for uh, undocumented people who might be uh, threatened by Trump. And yet they didn't actually vote in our election, contrary to what he said. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I think for those of us who are older, it's it's like this country is bipolar, and now we're on the other side of it. And for some of us who are really older, I remember the sanctuary movement for Central America refugees in the 1980s. And it just feels like, oh, yeah, we're gearing up for a Republican again. They're going to you know, lay waste to a lot of stuff for eight years and, well, four years. Or I, you know, I think Trump might crumble pretty quickly if he takes power. So, but, you know, they're going to they're gonna destroy the economy and we're going to see what we can salvage. Although one of the sad things I feel like we're learning from the Obama era is that they don't, uh, Democrats don't necessarily undo the damage that Republicans have done. And Obama did some things, but we didn't stop the drones, we didn't stop the wiretapping, we didn't rein in a lot of the kind of uh, um, governmental overreaches as much as we could have. But, you know, my belief is always that this is about not what elected officials give us, but what we make them do. We could have pushed harder uh, we could have been a stronger civil society when, you know, the governors governed by the consent of the governed, and that's something that we can withdraw. And, and one of the things that's so complicated about trying to organize and inspire hope in this moment is that a great deal is possible if we believe it is, but getting people to even believe that we can change things is often such an uphill battle. You wrote recently for The Guardian about how to stop Trump, and you had a you had a very important quote from a historian named Timothy Snyder who teaches about the Holocaust at Yale. What was it that Timothy Snyder said that seems so relevant to our current moment? He said, don't obey in advance. And I just thought that was such a compelling, illuminating thing to say, because there is a way you can see people starting to tell themselves oh, it's not safe to do that anymore. Oh, I don't dare speak up anymore. And so they really surrender before, the, you know, and my policy is always like, you know, don't defeat yourself. Maybe they'll defeat you, but don't do it for them. And so I feel like moving into this next era, we need to be as powerful as possible, as confident as possible, as connected as possible, and uh, and to remember the lessons of history, the ones about civil societies that have overthrown regimes from South America to Eastern Europe, about the powers that we have, about how change really works, and take inspiration from that to do the work that's before us, which is considerable. Rebecca Solnit. Rebecca, thanks so much for talking with us today. My pleasure, John. 
Now it's time to talk about how big organizing can change everything. For that, we turn to Zach Exley. Zach served as a senior advisor on the Bernie for President campaign, and he was an architect of the national volunteer-driven grassroots part of that campaign. Zach started out as a union organizer and then became MoveOn.org's first organizing director in its campaign to prevent the war in Iraq in 2003. He worked as John Kerry's director of online fundraising and communications, and he raised more than $100 million online for Kerry. He lives in the Ozarks with his family, and his new book is Rules for Revolutionaries, How Big Organizing Can Change Everything. Zach Exley, hello to you in the Ozarks. Hey, thank you for having me on the call. So what is big organizing? How big is it? Well, big organizing is actually a term that my co-author, Becky Bond, who worked with me uh, in the in the parallel role on the Bernie campaign, she coined that term, and it really kind of stuck. You know, presidential campaigns focus on those first four states. You know, it used to be two, now it's four. And that's where they staff up in their primaries, that's where they invest. And they kind of tend to just leave the rest of the states alone until they see how those first four go. And the, the way the logic always went was we just don't have enough money to compete in all 50 states. You know, how could we hire, you know, it takes, um, you know, 150 staffers to get a real campaign going in Iowa. So how, how, do, how would we even think about approaching California and New York and all 50 states. You know, for a long time, I had thought about this and Becky had thought about it. We talked a lot about it, about there's, you know, using technology and using some of the, the techniques and tools that have been developed over the years to give volunteers in all 50 states a way to participate. And uh, Becky was really instrumental in getting our phone banking program going. And we basically, that that was kind of our, you know, hammer, you know, that, that we had. Um, in this, it came to be called a distributed organizing program. And that was the, the phone banking was the one thing that we could really give people. We, we gave them a few other things, but phone banking was the main one that we were able to give to all these distributed volunteers all over the country to do, to actually try to make a difference in those early states. But then also on Super Tuesday, and then in Michigan, and, in, uh, and eventually all over the country. Uh, and it was big. Uh, there was uh, more than 80 million calls were made by volunteers uh, to voters. And uh, we also had a peer-to-peer -peer texting program where they were telling people their, what their polling place was uh, over text messages. And there was more than 8 million individually sent text messages where people could actually reply, you know, to follow-up questions, stuff like that. So what was big about it, well, big organizing was getting hundreds of thousands of volunteers into a structure where they could actually make a difference and do work that actually might move the needle. The Bernie campaign gave us a glimpse of what is possible. 80 million calls to voters, 13 million votes in the primary. But of course, the Trump campaign won. You say in your book, Trump let the genie out of the bottle. Which genie was that? You know, all this mass power internet fundraising and organizing stuff was developed um, by Democrats. You know, it was, it was developed, it was actually developed by a lot of people who were not Democrats, but who were, you know, who had gone in and worked on Democratic uh, presidential campaigns like, like me and a lot of other people. All along, I was thinking that 
I couldn't figure out why is it that the Republicans aren't really embracing any of this. And uh, what I told myself was, well, you know, it doesn't work for them because they're so unpopulist. You know, their yeah. their their vision, you know, is really not something that's going to rile up a whole lot of people. Um, and there are a lot of people riled up on the right and with the Republican Party that do have a big vision, but they they tended not to be really all that excited about, you know, their presidential standard bearers in the presidential races. So Trump came along and was the first, you know, right wing uh, populist kind of, you know, demagogue that really made a direct connection with some elements that were already doing grassroots organizing and were mobilizing at the grassroots level. But then he brought in a whole nother wave of of participants with his super anti-immigrant uh, stuff and xenophobic uh, rhetoric. So he, you know, so this was the first case that we saw of people using these, you know, internet tools uh, and using internet mobilization, you know, on the right. Now that said, I don't think that they actually got very sophisticated. I think that what was sophisticated was Trump's rhetoric, you know, and I, I know that probably sounds like a contradiction. You know, a lot of people talk yeah. about Trump speaking at a third grade level, but I think that's nonsense. I think he's very smart in the way he's communicating to people, I think he's uh, he's pushing a certain people's buttons in uh, in a brilliant way. You know, it's it's I don't like the buttons he's pushing, and I think it's really bad. But um, but then also, you know, and that's talking about the his anti-immigrant rhetoric, his racist rhetoric, his misogynist rhetoric. But um, but at the same time, the way he swayed uh, several really important counties that actually gave him the presidency in the Rust Belt was by talking in a very sophisticated way about jobs and the economy and about rebuilding America's means of making a living. And people who are not, you know, lefties and progressives who are not giving Trump credit for, you know, for communicating very well uh, to people about um, what's going on in the economy, what's been going on about the 40-year decline that Democrats and Republicans have presided over, decline in the and dismantling of America's means of making a living. Trump actually had a really compelling argument for for voters that have seen their means of making a living be dismantled. I think that all of that other stuff was is actually what held him back, and what all the xenophobic and racist rhetoric was what held him back actually, and and uh, prevented him from doing much better. But the people in those counties, which, you know, which voted for Obama in 2008 and 2012, uh, the people in those Rust Belt counties that flipped, they just couldn't resist voting for him because of his message on the economy. It was so perfect for them. And uh, and and so despite everything else and despite a lot of their better uh, intentions, you know, they just said, I'm going to send a message. I don't care. And they cast a vote for Trump. Can we talk about brand new Congress? Yeah. All right. Uh, a bunch of people uh, from the Bernie campaign and a lot of people that weren't involved in the Bernie campaign are working together on this thing called the brand new Congress. And the idea is that we're recruiting 400 candidates to run as a block, to run all as one unified campaign behind a unified platform. And that platform is a promise to the American people that if you elect us, and I'm not one of the ones running, but you know, we're, we're going to find, you know, good legitimate candidates, not loudmouth uh, people like me. And uh, and we're we're going to we're going to the people and we're saying, if you elect us, here's what we're going to do. And it's a huge plan to 
actually rebuild uh, our economy and re radically reform our criminal justice system and our social sef safety net and our schools and all of our institutions um, that are so broken and that pretty much all of America agrees are just so incredibly broken right now. But, you know, again, one of the ways that Trump won was by saying, I'm going to rebuild your means of making a living. And that means building. And, you know, we everybody jokes about Trump because, you know, he, he was just not talking like a politician. He was just telling people, I'm going to build, you know, huge factories, beautiful factories in your town, the best factories. Right. And but if you actually go back and watch his speeches in, you know, that he made three times a day in huge stadiums all across the Rust Belt for months and months, what he was he was saying that over and over and over. Now, it's true that it's an empty promise coming from Trump, but there actually is no reason why we shouldn't be talking that way to the American people, but not in an empty promise that just some guy like Trump pulls out of his head. But that actually should have been our economic message all along. And actually, in long before Trump, a bunch of us were arguing for exactly this kind of a plan and this kind of rhetoric about rebuilding the American economy. So it's about the, the BNC plan, which you can see at brandnewcongress.org slash plan, or just, just go to brandnewcongress.org and you'll find it. Um, it's, it's about building 100% renewable energy economy. It's about rebuilding our infrastructure entirely, you know, doing the whole $3.6 trillion plan that the American Society of Civil Engineers says we need to do, uh, not Trump's $1 billion plan, not Hillary Clinton's $275 billion plan, and not, not even Bernie's $1.6 trillion plan, but the full $3.6 trillion. But it's also about building our missing industries, because most of the really valuable, expensive stuff that we use in our everyday lives, we do not make in America anymore. And there's, and I, it's not anymore. We've never made this stuff. We've never made smartphones here. We've almost never made laptops. We've almost never made flat panel displays. And, and all of the new, crazy, amazing high-tech stuff that Silicon Valley is about to roll out to us, there are no plans to make any of that in the United States. This is not about bringing jobs back. We're talking about building industries that we've never had before. And it's not about taking jobs away from other people in, in the world. We Every country needs a means of making a living. And it's frankly dangerous and destabilizing for the American people to be losing their means of making a living the way we have been. And the best proof of that is that they just got, the American people are so angry about losing their means of making a living that they just elected someone as crazy as Donald Trump. Uh, yeah, and you can get more information about Brand New Congress by coming to brandnewcongress.org. Please come sign up and, and be a part of this. And this Brand New Congress, you're aiming for 2018? That's right. Uh, we're, recruit, we're trying to recruit 400 candidates to run as a block uh, for 2018. And so there's 469 people that are up for re-election in 2018 in the Congress. And so we're not saying we're going to challenge every single one of them. We think there are some great people in there. Maybe there are 60 or 70 great people in there. Uh, and, and we're going through a process now of trying to figure out exactly who we're not going to challenge. But we're going to challenge the vast majority of people, both Democratic and Republican, in the Congress. And the strategy here is that if we have 400 candidates running together as a unified campaign, that we're actually going to be able to go into that hyper 
uh, we should invent a word for it. I, I, I don't know why we have not invent why nobody's invented for a word for this before. But but, you know, this kind of like hyper fundraising mode that we see with presidential campaigns. And it's not just fundraising, it's hyper fundraising and organizing mode where, you know, and it started with Dean uh, Kerry. Nobody remembers, but, ra you know, raised half of his budget online. It was like this surprise you know, uh, 125 million in the end that came, that came in online for, for Kerry um, and Obama, of course. And then Bernie, who raised more than anybody ever in, in any primary, he raised $232 million online in small donations. So we think that by putting, we think that, that this new mechanism in politics is what makes something like brand new Congress possible for the first time essentially since the American Revolution, when something kind of like it happened once before. Uh, and so we, we think that if we have a block that stands up there and announces all on the same day and says, here we are, this is what we want to do, please vote for, vote for the brand new Congress in 2018, we think we'll be able to raise hundreds of millions of dollars and sign up hundreds of thousands of volunteers and using the same tools that we used uh, with Bernie, same tools that campaigners have used with Obama and a lot of other great campaigns. Uh, we're going to run a campaign in all 50 states and 400 or more districts, and we think we can actually win. Our problems are big, so our solutions have to be big, too. That's what Zach Exley says. His new book is Rules for Revolutionaries, and you can find more information about Rules for Revolutionaries along with a downloadable open-source teaching tool to help implement change in your community at www.bigorganizing.com. Zach Exley, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me on. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.